3: It is Monday, July 11th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, back from vacation and very excited to be here behind the microphone with all of you. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time right here for the program. If you can't listen live as we air during those hours, which we always recommend, there's a podcast available every day on demand, totally free of charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. You can also check out FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You have options. I'm the political editor at Townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on the panel tonight on Special Report just before 7 p.m. Eastern Time, the final block of that show on Fox News Channel. That's this evening. I believe Brett is off tonight, maybe this week. Bill Hemmer filling in. So hope to see you there. You can tune in or set your DVRs here on the radio side of things. Quite a lineup in store starting later this hour with our colleague, Britt Hume. A lot to get to with Britt. In the next hour, Dr. Nicole Sapphire on COVID, a huge wave of COVID hitting America right now. Although we're not really hearing too much about it, is that actually unto itself some promising news? We will ask the doctor about that and more. Also in that second of three hours, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican out of Texas. He represents Uvalde. There was a big bill signing at the White House today. This Republican from Texas supported the bill that passed on a bipartisan basis. We'll ask him about that, plus some border-related issues. It's a border district. And in our final hour, U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a Republican, will be here. He was the primary Republican co-author and co-sponsor of that bill. That President Biden signed today, we will have Senator Cornyn here to answer some questions on that front and a few others if we have time as well. So we are packed here on this Monday. A new broadcast week is underway. And I felt like maybe the appropriate way to start the week would be to kind of reset things politically because we are now, as of today, 120 days out. From the 2022 midterm elections, which I think are extremely important elections. I know that we hear all the time, every two years, these are the most important elections ever, or at least of our lifetime. I'm not willing to say that about the 22 midterms, but I think that they are crucial. The Democrats control everything. The White House, the Senate, the House, I don't have to tell you that. And their governance has been a disaster. Whether you love the Republicans, whether you support everything that they do, is almost immaterial. Because what will happen if voters come out and repudiate, as I believe they should, Democratic governance in this unified left-wing government, if that repudiation occurs, you will then have checks and balances you will have someone with the opportunity to stand up or put a brake on what President Biden and his crew want to do. You will have some semblance or at least some chance of accountability. And sometimes what voters like to see, especially when one side has too much power and overreaches and goes too far and the results are bad, What the American people want, and they've shown this many times, especially in the gyrations of recent swings back and forth, like a ride at an amusement park, what they want is gridlock. Now, thankfully, from my perspective, over the last couple of years, the Democrats' internecine fighting and incompetence has led to more gridlock than I feared would be the case. But they have done some steamrolling in ways that I think have been destructive. Having driven from Virginia to Massachusetts, filling up my car multiple times, I can tell you the pain at the pump is real. You just stand there and you cringe. And like smoke starts to come out of your ears as the numbers tick up and up and up. The cost of everything. One of my favorite treats every vacation is to come up to the beach and get a lobster roll. I will not even tell you what I paid for a lobster roll. It's like a little indulgence. I get up here. Usually it's like 15 bucks. It's a good lunch. It's like, all right, I'm here. I can kick back, have this lobster roll, some Cape Cod potato chips, a little spear of pickle, Coke Zero. I'm in heaven. The sticker shock this year was so extraordinary that i said okay i'm not doing that again i'm getting one that's it for the whole trip and we are in a double income no kids household situation right now so we have a little bit more disposable income than other folks who are working paycheck to paycheck living that way multiple kids all these outside expenses i mean people are getting crushed and it shows up in their lives. In ways big and small. Small being, oh gosh, I'm paying so much for this treat that I like. Big being, can I pay my mortgage? Do I have to get a second job just to keep up with inflation? If I'm on a fixed income that isn't caught up yet in the indexing to inflation, it's just outpacing and I'm getting swamped, I'm drowning in this, can I... Go see my children or grandchildren, for example. We heard from some of you when we took calls a couple weeks ago on this. So we are 120 days out from the crucial, sacred day in American democracy, in this republic, where we, the electorate, we, the people, get to send a message to the people who are in power. The people who are in power, I think, have done a very bad job. To the extent that things are not worse, it's because they didn't get even more of what they wanted. If this team, Team Blue, Team Biden, whatever you want to call it, if they had gotten what they wanted and they came awfully close, they would have spent $5 trillion more trillion Inflation would be that much worse. Imagine that. It's bad enough with the egregious spending, $2 trillion, totally wasteful, supposedly for COVID. And they cry poverty on basic stuff like testing, therapeutics, vaccines, and insult. They shut down, basically, or hogtie the U.S. energy industry and then stand around blaming everyone else when energy prices skyrocket. Oh, Putin, Putin, Putin and they were peddling and shoveling a bunch of bs at us just a few weeks ago before i went on vacation in fact let's check in have they moved on from any of the ridiculous talking points yet let's see karine jean pierre white house spokesperson last thursday what did she say cut 20 cut 32
1: We look at where we are economically and we are in a strong uh, we are stronger economically than we have been uh, in history. When you look at the unemployment numbers at three point six percent, when you look at the jobs numbers, uh, more than eight point seven million of new jobs created.
3: Okay, New week, same nonsense. They're going to be stuck on this. I'm not saying that there are no bright spots in the economic numbers. Decent jobs report last week, unemployment is low, but the combination of inflation, low unemployment, demand, all of it, when you add it up, the experts have been saying this is the recipe for recession, which would be the next shoe to drop potentially in all of this. And as we are now roughly four months away from this election that I keep talking about, I understand that Joe Biden, the President of the United States, is not going to be on the ballot Well, he might not be on the ballot two years from now either. We'll see. That's a whole separate conversation that people are having. Big New York Times story about that today. We'll get to that. We'll ask Brit Hume about it coming up. He's not on the ballot, but I would say his leadership absolutely is. Congressional Democrats, for the most part, almost all of them have gone away, or rather have gone along with everything that this guy and his team have asked for. They told voters two years ago that they were going to be moderate. They were going to want to work together and be cooperative and collaborative with the Republicans. They just wanted to heal. That's how Biden described his own governing mandate. And then they've governed like they had a completely different mandate, like he was FDR 2.0. Because they had a 50-50 Senate and a shrunken, thin, thin majority. In the House of Representatives, which got even thinner just recently because the Republicans and a Latina conservative picked up a district, won that back, a seat that the Republicans haven't had in eons. And their idea of how to govern the country under these circumstances was, let's just put our pedal to the metal and do everything that we possibly can. And they've been saluting. The rank and file, these senators, these members of Congress, they've been saying whatever Joe and Chuck and Nancy want, we're going to vote for, with very few exceptions. And so in early November, 120 days from right now, the American people are going to turn out and decide whether or not they want to endorse the results, whether they want to embrace and applaud and reward these outcomes, And this status quo, or if they want to send a message for change and a new direction, or at least someone saying, no, stop. And if you look at the numbers that are continuing to pile up for President Biden, it looks very much like the ruling party. This group that's in charge that they are in for a world of hurt. 120 days from now. The New York Times poll with Siena out today has President Biden at 33% approval. Thirty-three. Sixty percent of Americans disapprove of the job President Biden is doing. I mean, he's almost 30 points underwater in the New York Times poll. Imagine how painful it was for the editors to mark up that piece, put that news in the paper. That's what the data shows. Even from the Times poll, they ask people about the right track, wrong track number in the country. Are we going in the right direction? In this same survey, thirteen percent of Americans say we're going in the right direction. Thirteen, one, three. I'm not misreading that. That's what it says. Seventy-seven percent. Seventy-seven percent of the country say. And the electorate says we're going in the wrong direction. Right now, if you look at the Real Clear Politics tracker, right track, wrong track, there are more people convinced that we are headed in the wrong direction right now than was the case just after the January 6th Capitol riot, which was a dark day. And it's even worse now than it was in the teeth of COVID lockdowns and mass casualties day after day. More people thought we were in a better place on a better trajectory during the height of the pandemic than they do right now under Joe Biden's inflation and gas prices and lethargy and failures were coming up on a year on the disgrace in Afghanistan. Just one thing after another. There's nothing that can be done about Biden and Harris and that team. They'll be at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue until 2025 but for months from right around now some big other changes can be implemented can be manifested by the american people and if you look at these numbers as we were just doing for biden in fact if again you look at the real clear politics averages which i think is more interesting biden is now 20 points underwater on average On job approval. President Trump had kind of a floor in the high 30s, sometimes around 40 on average in any given year on his approval. He would have some bad, bad news cycles, but he would eventually hit a floor and then come back up into the low to mid 40s. Joe Biden has now been languishing in the 30s. Nine of the last 11 public polls have him in the 30s. The civics poll has him at 29% approval today. New York Times, 33% approval. Where is the floor for Joe Biden? I'm not sure we found it yet. Because Republicans, of course, are appalled by what they're seeing. Independents have been stampeding away from the Democrats. The Democrats are hemorrhaging independents. And then a lot of Democrats are angry and frustrated over a whole bunch of different things. So they're lashing out. They're sour on Biden. Almost two-thirds of them in this poll from The Times today say that they want someone else to run other than Biden in 2024. They're over him, young people in particular. This is how the bottom falls out of a presidency. And that is what we are seeing. Between the president's numbers, the economic numbers in terms of what people are paying for everything, the right track, wrong track numbers, and then just the arc of history when it comes to midterm elections, right now it is looking like that first Tuesday in November is going to be an electoral political bloodbath. But that only happens if every single person who agrees with that shows up, makes it a point to vote. A bunch of the independents who might swing back and forth decide we're swinging away. We are done with this ruling party for now. And if enough Democrats are disgusted enough to stay home, it appears at the moment like that mix, that stew is brewing. And some of this stuff is starting to get baked in. We talk about the home stretch at the end of every one of these shows. We are about to enter the home stretch of this campaign and we will be covering it in detail every day right here, because it matters. Just getting started on the Guy Benson Show. Back from vacation, obviously raring to go. Stay with us.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your
3: podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Another thought on this, looking at the New York Times data that we referenced there in the opening monologue... of Democrats say they want someone else to be the presidential standard bearer in 2024, not Joe Biden anymore. I can understand why. Right. If I were in their shoes, I would not be thrilled with what I'm seeing. Some of them think he's too weak, too ineffectual. Of course, the rest of the country feels like they've done way too much. Right. The Democrats complaint from the left is he's not doing enough. Everyone else is saying, no, please stop. Enough is enough. So that's a Tough spot politically for the Democrats to be in. Also, be careful what you wish for. You want someone else, then who? I think Joe Biden might have been the only person on that side capable of beating Donald Trump, even with the pandemic in 2020. Think Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris is going to beat him under those circumstances? I don't think so. What if Trump runs again? Do they want to risk Trump winning? That's something they have to think about, even if they're not really excited with Biden, whether they think he's up for the job or not. I mean, they have to make some tough decisions in this same poll. Biden's still leading Trump by three points head to head. Republicans need to think. Look at this disaster. Biden at three thirty three percent approval, seventy seven percent wrong track. And Trump still isn't ahead of Joe Biden. Is that the person Republicans want to put up with all that baggage in twenty twenty four decisions, decisions?
4: We'll <laughs> be
2: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
3: Thanks for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com online, podcast, free on demand every day. Let's bring in Britt Hume, Senior Political Analyst at Fox News. And Britt, as always, great to have you here.
6: Thanks, Guy. Glad to do it.
3: So I just opened the show as off last week, and I wanted to do an opening monologue just sort of Expressing my 50,000-foot view of American politics right now, 120 days out from the midterm elections, I gave my overall assessment, and I'm wondering what yours is big picture right now.
6: Well, I think it's going to be a good year for the Republicans. Um, it seems very likely to get control of the House. The Senate is in doubt for the Republicans because of this possibility. one. That they will, they may nominate candidates who appeal to elements of their base, um, but who can't win a general election. They've had some history of doing that, and there seems a possibility in some states they'll do that again, which would very much diminish their chances of getting control of the of the Senate. And the second issue that could complicate everything would be an early entry into the presidential race of Donald Trump. Because it would force every candidate, every single candidate on the ballot in in this coming fall to announce himself or herself on the issue of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is the most controversial political figure of our time, perhaps. And that that would further my view that he is the Democrats' best hope. The more he's on the stage, the more central he is, the better it is for the Democrats.
3: Yeah, and I do want to come back to Trump here because there was a coda to my monologue about one data point in an otherwise disastrous poll for Joe Biden, the Democrats today, in the New York Times. There's another one from Civics that's even worse nationally for Joe Biden. I'm not sure I've ever seen polling for a president this bad, especially for a president that generally has the backing of most of the press and you know the pop culture tastemakers in the country. He's in the 30s across all the polling, and some of these surveys have him in the low 30s. And to your first point on the Senate, I think it's well taken. You can go back even to big wave years like 2010, where the Republicans left points on the field, especially on the Senate side, because of exactly what you just described. You know, A wave does not necessarily guarantee that you're going to win some of these races in, you know, tightly contested statewide races. That being said, Brett, when you look at the president's job approval, when you look at right track, wrong track numbers, when you look at the generic congressional ballot, you look at, you know, inflation and gas prices, you add it all together, I, I can't really recall a confluence of events this bad for the ruling party in a very long time and you i guess you start to wonder could some flawed candidates maybe not matter if the wave gets redder and more crimson and taller as the weeks progress i can see a scenario where some maybe lousy candidates went anyway
6: i remember in 1980 when you had a big big republican year and everybody, on just about everybody, won, including some real Lulus on the Republican side. And, and, a, and a bunch of them were washed out in 1986, when, of course, it was the next time those senators were up for election. So a big wave can sweep in all kinds of people. And a big wave this year might do that. But it is, But, but some of these races are close. And remember this, Guy, the map is not that good for the Republicans. The, mm-hmm. the political atmosphere is very good for them, but the map is not so great. They're they're defending more seats than the Democrats. So in the Senate, you know, it's, it's in the Senate, that's right. And of course, everybody's up in the House, so um, that's another contributing factor in my view that that the Senate is in doubt. Although, you know, as you suggest, a big wave could sweep everybody in, and it won't matter too much, but. And certainly the conditions for a big wave would seem to be present when the New York Times poll that was reported today said that 64 percent of Democrats don't want Biden to run again. That's that's a pretty devastating number.
3: Oh, I mean, it is a talk about getting washed out. They want to wash out their own president next time. They're looking ahead to 2024, saying, no, thank you. The problem with that, Brett, and this is one of these, you know, two ideas colliding and they come from opposite directions The insight being this, on the left, a lot of them are abandoning Joe Biden because they feel like he has not done the things that they want him to do. He's been too weak, too tepid, ineffective, mealy-mouthed. They're concerned about, you know, his ability to do the job and all that, but a lot of it is results-oriented. They're angry at him, and they feel like we can do better than this. Let's move on. A lot of the other opposition to Joe Biden, from everyone not to his left, because they don't want him doing any more than he's already done, right? These are very different forces that are at least uniting in one sense, which is to drive down this guy's approval rating. And and I have no idea what an election could look like. Like, let's say Joe Biden's in the 30s, entirely plausible by November. I'm not really sure how that would manifest itself in terms of seats won or lost, but It's it would be historic, I would imagine, because it's one of the most important signifiers to try to predict what might happen in a midterm election, which usually doesn't go well for the president's party in his first term. Anyway, you add in all these other factors and, and rank unpopularity and a demoralized party base. I mean, if you want to talk about a tsunami, that's certainly the recipe, isn't it? It
6: is. It certainly is. And, you know, as you suggest. Uh, a president's political standing with the electorate has always been a major factor in how his party does in a midterm, not just the first midterm, which are traditionally bad for the party that holds the White House, but in all midterms. So that's a big factor. There's no doubt about it. it. And he now stands about as poorly as one can stand. 33% 33% in this uh, New York Times poll. And Lee, look at the conditions. I mean, this inflation thing is a total monster for, for a party in power because it affects literally everybody. Yes, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who may be able to afford to pay the higher prices, but they don't like them. And everybody notices.
3: Britt, you've been on this show faithfully, you know, every month or so for years. And we appreciate it. We always love your perspective. I uh, have great Uh, admiration and respect for you and you have been saying on this show and other shows as well without sort of some of the uh maybe pleasantries surrounding your words or kind of uh, perhaps uh i'm trying to figure out the best way to put this politely but you're not pulling punches in the way that you have described president biden's performance in terms of his acuity And whether he is physically, mentally up for the job, you have been very open about your thoughts on that. And it has been a source of criticism from some of you, saying this is unseemly, uh, it's it's rude, he's overstating the case, you know, to use a word like senile. You haven't backed away from that. That whole intro, that wind-up to the question, I only say all that because it seems like suddenly the memo went out not long ago on the other side of the aisle, that they're allowed to start kind of whispering or even speaking openly about exactly that same thing. You've been saying it for the better part of, what, a year and a half now, certainly the last year, and it was a lot of tis-tisking and uh, these things shouldn't be said. And now I guess they've decided that, what, they can't avoid it anymore and if they're going to push them out, they have to start saying these things. I just wonder how you feel about that, given the fact that you've been stating this case very... Sort of baldly uh, for a while now, and other people might be playing a little bit of catch up. It seems.
6: I think there's some truth to that, guy. And, and remember, the word "senile," while a lot of people um, gasp when they hear it, if you look the word up, it simply means showing the effects of one's age. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have dementia. It doesn't mean that you have you know uh, some ill great disease. It simply means you're showing the effects of age. I think that's manifestly and obviously true of Biden and has been for some time. Um, But but his age has clearly affected his ability to do the job. He stumbles around in speech. Uh, He forgets where he is. Um, You know, you watch him walk. You can tell that he's enfeebled Um, and, you know, it's so screamingly obvious. Uh, And the chickens are coming home to roost on this issue now. Uh, And the members of his own party obviously know it, and they... And they look at that, and they look at the polling, and they say, oh, my God, we can't win with this guy. We're going to lose big. we got to, we got to move on. And, of course, their problem is that the natural obvious successor to a Biden candidacy would be a Kamala Harris candidacy, and she stands, if anything, even worse with the public than he does. So in that respect, the Democrats have a very serious problem that they've now finally begun to face up to. It's going to be very interesting to see how they handle it.
3: Yeah. I, I was saying earlier in the show, some big decisions to be made, really by The voters in each party base, I know we're discussing 2022, and that's how I opened the interview, but people are already looking ahead to 2024 in earnest, talking about it a lot, because it's not like it's way off in the distance, to your point. There are open calls on the left. A a supermajority in this New York Times poll want Biden out. Those are conversations that impact politics now. Not next year, not the year after that. Right now, it plays into the midterms. It plays into the psyche of the Democratic electorate. And then on the flip side with the Republicans, you reference this, former President Trump rumored to maybe jump into the presidential race ahead of 2024 before even the midterm elections for various reasons. And that could impact, as you said, this November's outcomes potentially, maybe at the margins, maybe more so. And it certainly thrusts the conversation of 2024 upon us even sooner than we tend to do these things, which is you know pretty premature. This is what we do in our business. We talk about the next presidential election, the day after a presidential election. But if you've got people declaring two years early or at least a year early based on the normal timeline, then you know that's news as well. And Republicans have to decide, Brett, based on this data that I cited earlier in the show – One of the only little slivers of silver lining in the polling data today is that even with all of these problems for Joe Biden, his terrible approval rating, 77% of the country saying we're on the wrong track, he's still head-to-head with Donald Trump, beats him. I mean, the numbers aren't impressive, 44-41, there'd be a lot of people deeply dissatisfied with that choice, but Biden is still ahead of someone with universal name recognition in Donald Trump, And one thing that conservative-leaning voters are going to have to decide is, do they want to put someone up in 2024 who might give the other side their best chance of winning in spite of everything? I think that's going to be fascinating.
6: I agree with you, and I think a lot of Republicans would like to see Trump go away. They're deathly afraid, however, of alienating his supporters. And think of this in the, if you were someone like Ron DeSantis, who stands well with the Republicans. Uh, his agenda is similar to Trump's in many respects. Uh, he would give the Republican Party a lot of the Trump agenda without the Trump baggage. That would make him, one would say, suggest, a very formidable potential candidate. If he were to take on Trump... If he were to run against him and beat him, the question then arises, would the, would the hardcore Trumpists, and there are certainly a, a significant number of them uh, that Republicans are hoping will vote with him, uh, would they ever vote for a guy that beat Trump? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I think there's a distinct possibility that while the Republicans uh, can't win with Trump, and I don't think they can, they can't win with his supporters abandoning them in the eyes of many. So I think mm-hmm. that's the dilemma the Republicans face, and it is a very difficult dilemma. So as, as, as much trouble as the Democrats are in with a president that they don't think can, is up to the job, and he isn't, um, Republicans have a comparable problem.
3: Yeah, and, and to that point, and again, so much of this feels early and yet not for the reasons that I laid out, you start sort of gaming out scenarios in your head. About how a Republican primary could potentially go down, and it might start conceivably very soon. The leader would be Donald Trump. I think he'd be the front runner out of the gate. Whether he could go wire to wire and get the nomination, again, I think he's probably the favorite to do that. I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk. I think there's fatigue. I think there's people looking to turn the page. I think declaring very early and not clearing the field might backfire, and then he's just sort of out there twisting for a long time, sucking up oxygen, maybe not in the best way. Let's say, and I'm not, I wouldn't put my money on this, but let's say a guy like DeSantis got in and somehow beat Trump. Your hypothetical question, could the Republicans win nationally with not Donald Trump because you've got, you know, hardcore supporters who sometimes won't show up? We saw that in Georgia for those runoff elections. You know, what would that look like? I think that if you had a vanquished donald trump willing to pass the torch willing to endorse the next person and saying look you know we had a tough campaign but he's for america first and so are we and we've got to make america great again with so and so he's got my complete and total endorsement and he becomes sort of uh, you know a kingmaker in some ways i think that's probably the smoothest way to transition to someone else i just don't know even if someone could beat trump which i'm not sure is possible i think it's conceivable I'm not sure he has it in him to do that and if he's going to then either stay silent or even actively undermine because of personal peak or whatever the person who beat him that is the type of scenario under which I think maybe enough people could stay home to benefit the Democrats Uh, again Britt it seems silly that we're talking about this so early and yet the 24 cycle might be upon us very soon which is why we're having this conversation right now
6: Look, guy, I think it really is on us, and I think it, and I think the twenty four prospects could very well affect the midterms in the, in the way I suggested, which is Trump gets in, announces, and every Republican candidate running is is called upon then to take a mm-hmm. position on Trump
3: mm-hmm.
6: um, and, and everything that he says and everything that he says, and everything that he does, he becomes a center of attention. The media will love it, they hate Trump. Um, but they also kind of want him to be in the in the middle of everything because it's great for their circulation and for their ratings. And it's also good for the party. They support the Democrats. Look, let's face it. Donald Trump is the Democrats' best hope for 2024 and maybe even for 2022.
3: Britt Hume, there will be no shortage of topics for us to talk about for many months to come. We always do value your time coming here and uh, spending a few moments with us on The Guy Benson Show As always, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure for me, too, Guy. Thank you. We will step aside. We will be right back. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. So the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York, his office has announced that he has contracted COVID. Apparently he's doing okay. Okay. But he has to quarantine now. He won't be present in the Senate. We wish him a speedy and complete recovery. But it's news, not just because here's someone prominent who has a case of COVID. It's not exactly, you know, massive. It happens all the time. But in a 50-50 knife's edge U.S. Senate, every single human being counts. Because even though the Democrats technically have a majority with 50 plus one, the tie-breaking vote, Kamala Harris, if they don't have 50 bodies there to actually vote, then operationally, functionally, they are not the majority. So is Schumer gone for a while? Pat Leahy from Vermont is recovering from surgery. Unclear what his timeline is. Apparently Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, who lied about serving in Vietnam for many years, Another Democrat, he now has announced he's got COVID. Again, we wish him a fast recovery. And then Dick Durbin just said moments ago that there's another Democratic senator who is out for some reason. So that's four. They're down four right now. So that grinds all of their plans to a screeching halt until they can get back up to 50. And with limited days in the calendar ahead of an election, every single one of those days is precious with a few things on the plate potentially this could be significant and it is something to watch it's why the absences actually matter in this case so closely divided very interesting we'll be watching it here another hour coming up dr nicole sapphire joins me after this on the guy benson show
2: From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
3: A brand new hour here in a brand new week on the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Glad to be back here from a little bit of time off. Thank you for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern guybensonshow.com podcast is always free on demand after the show is over i'll be on special report tonight joining that panel around 6 45 eastern that's on fox news channel this evening bill hemmer is in for brit excuse me for brett Bayer. we had Brett on last hour uh, this evening that's on special report fox news alert the dow closing down 162 points Ending the day at 31,175. Wanted to get that to you before we bring in our next guest, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of the book Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, great to have you here.
1: Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on this busy Monday.
3: Before we get into some COVID stuff, I did want to just ask you about a tweet that you sent over the weekend that went pretty viral. I shared it as well. I thought it was important information. Without getting into all of the drama around the hounding of Justice Brett Kavanaugh out of a restaurant in Washington, D.C., and now there are left-wing activists putting bounties out there saying we'll pay Workers' money at restaurants, if you give us a heads up that a Supreme Court justice is there so we can go and harass them at the restaurant, a lot of people have been defending or justifying that sort of thing. I think it is dangerous. I think it is bad. I think it is even more poisonous than we've already seen in our toxic politics. Putting that off to the off to the side, one of the people who was out there sort of banging the drum on this and enjoying what happened to Kavanaugh was Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She tweeted on July 8th very sarcastically about Kavanaugh. Poor guy. He left before his souffle because he decided half the country should risk death if they have an ectopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. They at least... The least they could do is let him eat his cake. And you decided not to weigh in on the politics or even the issue of abortion, really, but just to fact check from a medical science perspective something that AOC said, which was an assertion at the center of her attack on Kavanaugh that is just factually wrong. Right. I want to let you as a doctor make that point here on the air.
1: Well, guys, first of all, peaceful protesting is one thing. Uh, intimidation, harassment, and as we have seen, threats of violence are a completely other things. Yep. And on, in the same line, when you have you have congresswomen like AOC or just other people in leadership positions making these hyperbolic statements that are factually untrue for the only, the only reason to incite emotion and essentially put fear in the American people and as we are seeing, which are leading to destruction of property and even violence. I mean, that in itself is criminal, and that's what she's doing. Her statement, when she said he made the choice that 50% of Americans would possibly die if they had an ectopic pregnancy. First of all, let's just break down what is an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is when a fertilized egg um, essentially adheres to anywhere but in the uterus. Now, any, if, a, if the fertilized egg goes anywhere other than the uterus, it is not a viable pregnancy. And, in fact, it's very, very dangerous for the pregnant woman. If it can attach, it can attach. Usually, it attaches in the tube that connects the ovary to the uterus. And what can happen is, as it grows there, it can cause life-threatening bleeding, will eventually rupture, and it has a very high mortality rate for the, the mother, and these are again, are not viable pregnancies. Um, historically, anywhere from 90 to 95% of these tubal or ectopic pregnancies had to be removed surgically, but now we have medications that when given early enough can actually um, supplant the use of surgery and the woman can, um, they're able to dissolve the cells through the medication and saving the woman's life now when we're talking about even the states with the most extreme abortion laws right now this would not be illegal for the medical treatment of ectopic pregnancies given that it is a non-viable pregnancy Mm -hmm. and it puts the mother's life at risk and it's not just a one to two percent of the time it could kill the mother it's nearly a hundred percent of the time it would kill the mother if there is not Swift medical intervention. Therefore, it would not be deemed illegal in any of the 50 states. And for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to say as such is completely, completely in my, it is inappropriate and it is lying to the American people to push her agenda and to just incite fear and panic.
3: Well, it's misinformation is what it is. It is medical misinformation that is factually inaccurate. And as you said, even the most restrictive abortion laws in the country protect exactly this scenario that she is lying about and so i think there are some extreme laws in one direction there's other extreme laws in some of these other states that i think are extremely permissive abortion laws all of them have one thing in common which is this type of procedure is protected and not illegal and that's just misinformation from the congresswoman and i was glad that you as a female and a medical doctor corrected the record on that and i wanted to give you an opportunity to do that here as well in the meantime Dr. Sapphire, there is a big wave right now on COVID in the United States. A lot of cases are way up. It kind of feels quiet because there's not a lot of freak out about it. We're seeing some mask mandates coming back or mask recommendations, and some people are raising the alarm. What do you make of this in terms of the trajectory of cases? Is the severity lower now that this is sort of endemic and a lot of people have some? You know, degree of protection from this, whether from, you know, shots or, you know, previous infections or some combination thereof. What do we need to know about this active big COVID wave?
1: Well, guys the United States finds itself in a very interesting position right now because unlike the majority of the world, the United States, a lot of people still have a hard time accepting that this virus has become endemic and we're going to continue to see these cyclical waves of cases. The bottom line is we should probably stop counting cases the way that we are doing because what do these case counts mean to us right now? Very little. The, the dominant strain that's circulating is that's referred to as BA5, and that's a sub of the Omicron variant, which we saw begin in December and January. What do we know about BA5? It's BA4 and BA5 that's mainly circulating right now. These are highly contagious. I feel like a broken record. Every new variant, I'm like, even <laughs> yes. more contagious. Well, uh-huh. this is even more contagious than the last one. But again, the good news is the more contagious it is, seems to be, the less severe also it seems to be. One thing of note that they're seeing with BA5 is it's escaping natural immunity a little bit more. So people who are just infected are getting it again. It's also escaping vaccine and booster immunity as well. So with that being said, you're going to see more cases. And what we need to continue to do is make sure that those who are the most vulnerable are getting their booster shots. And also we do now have antibodies that we can be giving prophylactically to people that are considered high risk, but for the far majority of Americans who are those who are not high risk, we can kind of accept that SARS-CoV-2 is here to stay. COVID-19 has gone from a severe flu to a COVID cold in the majority of people and we shouldn't we shouldn't be too concerned or too worried when we start seeing reinfections because we kind of expect this to happen. Most coronaviruses that cause the common cold, you get yep. the common cold over and over and over again. Now we there's going to be an updated vaccine slash booster targeted towards Omicron, likely released in the fall, and this is going to be really important for a lot of people, especially those who are high risk and It's just going to be like, as we see with the flu every year, you tailor a new flu shot to the circulating strain. And I truly anticipate you're going to see the covid shot doing something similar, whether or not it should be a universal shot that's recommended for everyone. You know, I'm I'm probably going to say no. I think it should be more targeted for people who are more high risk. However, it should be widely available to anyone who wants it. And I think that's going to be our way forward.
3: And that's the type of conversation that we will have with you, I'm sure, as the fall approaches here on this program and across the Fox family as well. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, always appreciate your expertise here on the show. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me, Guy.
3: We'll be right back after this Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, glad that you are here. Thank you for listening, GuyBensonShow.com. Joining me now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas, the 23rd congressional district down there. His district, of course, includes Uvalde, Texas. And, Congressman, welcome back to the program. Guy, thanks for having me on. I'd like to ask you about this bill that came about as a result of this horrible School shooting and slaughter in your district. You supported the legislation. It was signed into law today at the White House. We will talk to Senator Cornyn later on in the program about some of the specifics. Most Republicans were against this bill, at least in Congress. You were in favor. What was your thought process there? Why were you comfortable supporting this legislation? And what is your message to maybe conservative voters in your district or around the state of Texas or even your colleagues? in the House Republican Conference, who have a different view.
4: Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. And and, uh, this piece of legislation, number one, would have stopped, would have prevented the Uvalde shooting. That was part of my criteria for signing on. And, and in the House in particular, it's very partisan. And right after the DeValde shooting, there was actually a couple of uh, gun bills that came forward that I voted against. They were, were far-left gun bills. Uh, no Republicans signed on them. Um, I mean it, 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 that, that's what was happening in the House. In the Senate, they took a different approach. It was, hey, how do we get to 60 votes? And that was part of that uh, conversation as well, working with John Cornyn uh, as we worked through there. But the number one issue for me was would this have prevented DeValde shooting? Uh, also, would this infringe upon uh, our constitutional rights? And I lean, I've got gun manufacturers in my district. I leaned on them uh, as we were kind of building this out, if you will, to go, hey, as things were happening, they were involved in the process from my end. So there weren't really any surprises on there. And the second thing is, uh, it, this, is it, this piece of legislation provides billions of dollars for mental health. We, we always talk about it, but this is actually doing it. So I urge my colleagues now, whether you voted for it, whether you voted against it, everybody needs to be fighting for those dollars and bringing them
5: back to Texas.
3: I think that's fair enough. What are you hearing from your constituents in your district on the ground about this vote? Did this break through? Were people following it?
4: Yeah, no, a lot of people were falling in. I, I joke, you know, three out of four text messages or calls were positive. Uh, one out of four was not so positive. But in in my district, I mean, it is a it is always – I always have to explain myself. Every vote I take, I'm always upsetting someone in some form or fashion. So I, I've always leaned into it. We do teletown halls. I, I, I go around the district, and I go, this is why I, you know, did this. And uh, this piece of legislation, they're calling it a gun bill, and it's the furthest thing from a gun bill, guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're calling it a gun bill. Go ahead.
3: No, I generally think that's right. I think calling it a gun bill is the shorthand, but there's a lot of substance in there that has nothing to do with guns or the Second Amendment at all. And I think it's important to you know raise those items and bring those pieces to people's attention because I think some folks maybe hadn't even heard about some of those components. Congressman, I do want to ask you about a different subject and another horrible thing that happened in your neck of the woods down in Texas. More recently, 53 was the last count that I saw, the death toll of those illegal immigrants who essentially cooked to death in the back of a tractor trailer. They were locked in there by the cartels, dozens of deaths. And I know that story didn't get nearly as much national attention because I don't think it really serves The same type of narrative. I'm not saying that Uvalde should not have been huge national news. It was and it deserved to be. This is a greater loss of life under different circumstances, still kind of right in your backyard. And I'm wondering what the fallout is in your mind down in Texas from that episode and what you think it means about the broader crisis that is still raging at the southern border that you and I talk about so frequently, but a lot of people in the press just look the other way on.
4: Yeah, thanks for bringing it up, guy. This incident, the 53 migrants being cooked to death, was actually in my district. It was in my southern part of San Antonio, and it, it sadly in Texas 23, it's been one disaster after another and uh, you know uh, the left isn't even looking at it they they don't want to talk about it because like you said it doesn't fit their narrative i'm jumping up and down going this is happening every single day it's horrific to anyone making this journey it's unfair it's it's just all our lives are turned upside down and if they, if this didn't get people's attention. I don't know what would. Uh, so I've been pushing, look, immigrate to me, immigration reform starts with border security. How do we secure our border? And, and part of that is, is being able to give the resources to the men and women on the ground, but it's also enforcing our laws. It, 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 there's no secret sauce to this. Repatriation flights. If a person does not qualify for asylum, which, oh, by the way, 95% of migrants do not qualify for asylum, you return them back to their country of origin. You do that over and over again, and all of a sudden this stops.
3: Relatedly, we finally got a resolution to the Border Patrol so called whipping scandal which was a slander against those agents that went all the way up to the president himself. It dragged on for many, many months endlessly, and finally they've officially cleared those guys of the whipping, which they never did, which could have been made clear and was made clear, frankly, from the video and the images within hours. didn't need to take months, but they're still trying to ding them on some other infractions, administrative mistakes uh, an unnecessary use of force or the threat of use of force it seems like they're trying to backfill something to punish these people in order to fulfill the preemptive declaration of President Biden that they were going to be made to pay for something that appears to be what this is at least from the Department of Homeland Security your reaction to what we've just learned in the last few days
4: it's absolutely disgusting the way this administration has treated border patrol agents. And, and we've had enough, Uh, you know, everyone always asks me, Hey, is is Biden really running the presidency or is there someone behind the scenes kind of, you you know, uh, running things? Well, if, if you look at it, if you look at Homeland Security, if you look at the border, everyone always talks about Mayorkas, and everyone always goes after Mayorkas. But there's Commissioner Magnus, the CBP commissioner, and he is the one responsible for this whipping allegation. and no one ever talks about him. He's kind of quietly going about his business doing things, and he has absolutely tried to turn that organization upside down and inside out, So, and, and we can't stand for it. I think, the, I think what you're going to see is the uh, – Border Patrol Union is going to fight back against this, and they're going to end up winning because, like you said, their use of force argument holds no water. The the other part that really upset me is when they put this report out, they redacted some names, but they they left five names in there of the agents, almost intentionally trying to uh, create uh, uh, havoc for these agents, very similar to what they've done with Kavanaugh and, and some of our other Supreme Court justices.
3: Yeah, it's clearly punitive. And you can say that other people are pulling some of the strings, but ultimately the boss, Joe Biden, said that they had done the whipping, that they were guilty of it, and they were going to pay. And it seems like the underlings scrambled for months to figure out a way to keep that promise based on a lie. And if they're going to fight back, which it sounds like they're going to based on what you just said, I hope that they come loaded for bear in court or whatever the process is going to look like because it's already ugly and they deserve to have their say and get their side of this out on the record as well. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican from Texas, down there in Texas 23. Congressman, thank you so much for your time today. A busy day for you, I know. Thank you, guys. Take care. The Guy Benson Show resumes right after this.
2: Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Back on The Guy Benson Show. So late last week, the White House sent the president out to give a little speech about the issue of abortion. And they're doing it because of the pressure that they're getting from activists and their base saying, why haven't the Democrats done more? Why didn't they do more? Why is this response so weak and timid from the White House? So they're grousing and they're growling. And they're demanding things like court packing and blowing up the filibuster. You know the list. So I guess the White House is looking around, staffers, comms teams saying, what do we do? These things are not realistic. They can't happen. Our base is furious. If we start hemorrhaging our own voters, we talked about this earlier, then the approval ratings that are already bad, the bottom falls out. So they load up a speech on the teleprompter, and they trot out the president. He's got Becerra behind him, the HHS secretary, and the vice president, Kamala Harris, looking very, very stern. And he said a number of things on the issue. And one of the things that he said got a lot of attention, not because of the substance, but because of the Ron Burgundy effect of the president just reading literally, every word off of the teleprompter, including what appeared to be basically stage directions, like a little cue to him. I believe we played this on the show last week in my absence. Just for the purpose of this conversation, let's listen again to President Biden telling himself to, quote, repeat the line, cut 17.
5: It is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so, end of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political, or, or maybe precise, not and or, or political power. That's another saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue.
3: Repeat the line. And then he didn't exactly. Then he stumbled and tried to land on a point. Now, I want to actually set aside the anchorman ask foibles that had people chuckling over that clip. I want to talk about the substance. Before I do that, though, relatedly, I think there's an interesting answer to the question that people are asking. Why didn't Democrats do anything to, quote, unquote, codify Roe versus Wade earlier? Vice President Harris was asked about this over the weekend. She said, well, we thought the issue was settled. Some issues are just settled. The anchor is like, well, in this case, it wasn't. She's like, well, uh, yeah. It was a typically poor answer from her. Republicans and conservatives have been arguing for years that the abortion issue was not settled. There were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people marching every Roe versus Wade anniversary in January in Washington, D.C. There was a whole legal movement around the issue of populating the judiciary with people with originalist views. And that interpretation of the Constitution with one of the worst legal travesties being Roe versus Wade in their crosshairs. It wasn't really a subtle thing. Republicans have campaigned on nominating and confirming conservative judges at all levels of the judiciary. This was not some sort of sneak attack. This was the culmination of decades of planning and electoral strategy and grooming new generations of jurists and attorneys. And now that that has been achieved, that outcome, long sought by so many, you've got the other side, which has been basically just sitting there saying, yep, Roe versus Wade, that's our position for years with the simplistic polling about most Americans supporting Roe versus Wade. We've sort of explained why that's actually much more complicated than the top line might suggest. We don't have to recapitulate all of that right now. But they're in a panic. How did this happen? How can this be possible? And why weren't the Democrats ready with anything? Why didn't they do anything? And one of the more specific questions being asked is when Democrats had 60 plus votes to at least do a moderate codification of Roe versus Wade. You could argue an actual codification of Roe versus Wade because what they're proposing now is a truly extreme radical piece of legislation. That every single House Democrat, except for one in Texas, has already voted for. And every single Democratic senator, except for one, Joe Manchin, supports. And it is essentially banning all state-level limitations on abortion. And imposing a nationwide regime of abortion on demand, financed by taxpayers for all nine months of pregnancy. And if you look at the data... That is a position that is extremely fringe, shared by 10 to 20 percent of the public, but 99 percent of congressional Democrats. It is really far out there, and they often don't get called on it because so many people in the press happen to share their radicalism on this issue. But there was a period of time early in the Obama years where the Democrats had 59 to 60 votes in the Senate, some of which may not have gone along With a Roe versus Wade codification bill, something that would be moderate, something that would say, for example, there's a right to abortion early in pregnancy and then limitations are permitted at the state level beyond that. They could have written up that bill. They could have brought it to the floor. And even with a few defections from their own party, there were at least nominally three or four pro-choice Republicans in the Senate at that time, including both U.S. senators from Maine, Lisa Murkowski. Scott Brown, remember him? Why didn't they do that? Were they just confident that the Supreme Court would always uphold Roe and that there would always be a Democratic president to nominate justices and it would never become an issue? I think that's probably part of it. Hubris. They had their political outcome, their desired Ideological outcome on abortion just handed to them by seven unelected male judges in 1973, and they just sat back from that point on for the most part. But I think the bigger reason is they didn't want to even craft a bill like that. Why? Because their left wing, their base, their activist class, their donor class, would not have stood for that. What do you mean? You're only codifying Roe versus Wade. What do you mean you're only saying that there is in legislation a right to abortion for a few months of pregnancy and then there can be limitations after that? We don't want any limitations. Why are you giving any talking points, any leverage, any ground at all to the quote-unquote anti-choice, quote-unquote anti-women forces in the country? By the way, more on that point about women here in just a second. That's why I played the Biden clip a moment ago. Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi, probably could have figured out a way to pass a bill that was moderately pro-choice around that period of time. They probably could have done that in the Senate without blowing up the filibuster. They could have tried and at least made it close, theoretically, if not actually getting it done. And maybe they would have divided the Republicans a little bit. You're going to vote no on this. You're going to vote yes on this. What they were fearful of, ultimately, which is why I think they didn't act at all, is because they were more afraid of their own party and their own coalition splintering over something that was not radical enough. So they did nothing. And now here we are. And we hear all the histrionics about crushing the filibuster and blowing up the Senate as we know it and expanding the court. It's almost as if when you have political power that's been given to you by voters, you can make choices about what to do with that power. And that's precisely what we're seeing now at the state level on the issue of abortion. I just think that's a very interesting power dynamic that answers more accurately, more credibly, more coherently the question that Kamala Harris is really struggling to answer over the weekend. Well, we just thought it was settled. It's more complicated than that. And they don't want to admit that they did nothing partially out of fear of their own base because they are still, yet again, terrified of their own base. And what they're trying to do to give them something, sort of toss them a bone here, is they send President Biden out there to give another speech where he's flubbing lines left and right on the teleprompter, including, famously now, repeat the line. Rather than mocking him further for that, what was the point he was trying to make? The point he was trying to make was that, number one, women vote as a larger percentage of the electorate than men. Women register to vote and show up to vote at a disproportionate clip and rate compared to their male counterparts in the United States of America, point one, which is true. Point two is, and this is sort of The subtext, because abortion is so prized by women and because restrictions on abortion are such an affront to women and women's rights, the women of America can show up in November en masse in force and make a big statement, basically by electing a bunch of Democrats to enshrine radical abortion policies, with the underlying premise being that that's what women want. So basically, all right, girl power, go do it. Go vote. You know you want it. Let's make it happen on election day. This is the underlying assumption that I think is dubious to faulty. Because we have seen through the years, in a raft of public opinion polling on abortion, that there is virtually no gender gap on the question. You would think, based on the rhetoric, that men in this country tend to be against abortion but women are in favor of legalized abortion men do want limits on the practice women do not and based on that imbalance that's how we get the political outcomes that we do in the country because men are just sort of dictating their views and imposing their ethics and morality on the women of america and so the call to arms here is all right women Go do your thing and fight back at the ballot box. Except, as I was saying, we don't see that in the polling. There's almost no difference at all in the views of men and women on abortion. You can look at differences within racial groups, within age groups, and that sort of thing. Certainly partisan identification is a very big predictor of how people might view abortion policy, more so than gender. But because this is such an intractable talking point and trope on the left that so many Democrats believe, and certainly the media believes, it's just sort of accepted as true. No matter how many times you see data that contradicts it, which is why I think when we see data that contradicts it, we have to broadcast that data as loudly as we can. And maybe some journalists or other people will see it and at least have a little tiny moment of hesitation before they go back to the same lazy falsehoods on this. Which brings us to a new survey. I tweeted about it yesterday and it went viral, got a lot of attention. I wrote about it today at townhall.com with some very interesting results that I will share with you right after this.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson show.
3: I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I teased this right before the break. A brand new Harris Harvard poll on the issue of abortion. Fascinating results, starting with a majority, unsurprisingly, based on the dynamic mentioned earlier, are against overturning Roe versus Wade by a 10 point margin. However, a plurality, 37%, said that they would ban almost all abortions, with exceptions of rape. And incest. And by the way, to save the life of the mother is an exception in every abortion law all across the country, including on ectopic pregnancies, which is one of these red herring, deeply misleading arguments that people are making. It's just not true. But that is the plurality position, 37 percent, sort of a broadly pro-life position. When you start talking about limitations at certain weak increments in pregnancies, about half the country... Almost 50% support an abortion ban, broadly, after six weeks, which is similar to the Texas law that passed recently. By the way, that is almost identical to the outcome in a Fox News poll a few months ago on the same question. More Americans support the six-week ban than oppose it. What about 15 weeks? Banning most abortions after 15 weeks, which was the Dobbs case in Mississippi. That was the Mississippi law at issue there. Fifteen weeks if anything, is more permissive than we see in much of the developed world. Like in Europe, it's typically 6 to 20 weeks, somewhere in there, 12 being a familiar number. 15 is on the permissive side. But that's the law now in Florida. It was the Mississippi law in question before the court. The American people, 72% of them, 72% of us support a pretty broad abortion ban after 15 weeks. Almost three out of four. And yet, that supermajority is framed and cast so often as this out-of-touch, radical, extreme, anti-woman, anti-choice fringe, when in fact, as I said, it's a supermajority. And what about the gender gap that people like to talk about, or at least assume exists? When they asked men and women, do you support a ban on virtually all abortions after 15 weeks? 69% of men said yes, so a very large majority. 75% of women said yes. More women than men are in favor of the 15-week ban on abortion in the United States. Three out of four women in this country, a higher percentage by six points than men on the question. Then when you talk about a much more actually extreme position, allowing abortion up to 23 weeks, which is a restriction that still most Democrats refuse to agree to, they want no restrictions ever, up through birth, 40 weeks. 31% of men in this poll from Harvard said, how about 23 weeks and beyond? Just 25% of women agreed with that. So again, there is a gender gap in this survey where men are more opposed, are more hostile to abortion restrictions than women. Precisely the opposite of the capital N narrative that we are force-fed over and over again. It just isn't true. Polling shows there's either virtually no gap at all, or in the case of this survey, the gap exists narrowly, just not in the way that the Democrats, their base, their activists... And their media allies would have us believe. And I would love to hear, maybe this is a pipe dream, I would love to hear some of the Democrats and some of the leading commentators who are very vocal on this issue just simply be confronted with these numbers. Why is it that more women are likely to support abortion limitations than men? Why do you oppose abortion limitations that are supported by three out of four women and then you pretend that you speak for women? Those are the type of tough-pointed questions that Republicans would get under this circumstance if the roles were reversed. But I think the media is so dug in on this, and they are so fanatically part of the 10% of people in this poll who support nine-month abortion, 10%. That's basically 90% of the media, 99% of D.C. Democrats are within that 10%, which is why the questions that get asked do get asked, and the ones, crucially, that never get asked do not. And why information like I just shared with you in this segment rarely percolates out. Because people who don't like the information that I'm sharing just decide to ignore it. And ultimately, I think they do so at their own political peril. Because they are deeply out of touch and in denial. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up. Senator John Cornyn next. It's our final hour, the happy hour, here on The Guy Benson Show on this Monday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free of charge, on demand after the show. GuyBensonShow.com. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'm joining the panel. Bill Hemmer in for Brad Bayer. That'll be toward the end of the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel this evening. And this hour is sponsored here on the radio show by our friends at The Finish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing. I may have had a few. I've enjoyed some long drink during my week off. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. But with us now is U.S. Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas. He sits on the Finance, Judiciary, and Intelligence Committees in the upper chamber. And, Senator, it is good to have you back. Thank you very much, Guy. Good to be with you. Well, there was an event at the White House today, the signing of this bill, that came around and came about as a response to the horrible school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, your home state. You were instrumental on the Republican side in hammering out the details of that legislation. What can you tell us, just broad strokes, because I think there was a lot of attention paid to the incident, obviously, which is horrific. Then a lot of demands, as we often hear, for some action. Then some pushback about what you guys were proposing and putting together, and then other events seem to just sort of overtake the issue. So just to take a breather here, pause and rewind a little bit, talk about the process of getting this legislation to the floor and pass, and what can you tell my listeners in terms of broad strokes, what is in it, and maybe just as important to many of them, what is not in it?
5: Well, Guy, what struck me this morning about the uh, the event at the White House is how much that President Biden and Democrats wanted in a bill that was not in this bill. Um, and of course, that was essential if we were going to pass a bill at all, is because I have always believed that uh, it's a false choice uh, to choose between Second Amendment rights of law abiding citizens and sensible measures that do not encroach on Second Amendment rights but could help save lives in the future. We did this. Uh, in 2018, with a when we with the fixed NICS bill, the NICS being the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, and uh, I did that with Chris Murphy as well, um, and so I think it's a tribute to uh, Chris Murphy, Kirsten Sinema, Tom Tillis, and others um, to do what was possible. Again, I, uh, it's not uh, either or. I think you can do both. You can do things that will save lives, particularly when it comes to access. To, to mental health care and do uh, uh, enhanced background check systems of young men who, um, if if uh, the truth were revealed, it would show that they had disqualifying events in their past, but because they perhaps just turned 18, like Salvador Ramos did, uh, those were not available to the FBI in the background check
3: database. And so you guys are changing that here. That seems like a sensible step to me. There's also funding on mental health fronts, also school security. I know that was a big point of emphasis for many Republicans. The president, the White House, had said they were against that. No more funding on the school security front, which seemed absolutely bizarre to me. But ultimately, that was in the bill, and Biden decided to sign it. A lot of people, critics in particular, but also broadly the media as a shorthand, refer to this as a gun control bill. That's kind of like the... The top line messaging on it or the headline, I'm not really sure if that's an accurate characterization of what this legislation actually does. How would you categorize this bill?
5: Well, I agree with you, Guy. Um, it's interesting to hear people talk about it. Some people talk about it as gun control, which I don't believe it is. Uh, some talk about gun safety. Uh, some talk about the mental health component which uh, and the safe schools aspect of it, which this absolutely was about. Uh, I don't know whether people fu- fully appreciate it or not, but we made the biggest single investment in community-based mental health care uh, that the federal government has ever made in this bill. Uh, This is something that we've been trying to to working on in the past, because frankly, the, one of the biggest scandals in America is our lack of any sort of safety net or ability to respond when people are suffering from a mental health crisis. We've learned that uh, jails are not great places for them. We've learned that when uh, the police show up and somebody's going through a mental health crisis that maybe, just maybe, there ought to be somebody there uh, that can help them de-escalate or to train the officers so that uh, there's n- they're not a danger uh, to, to themselves, the person going through the crisis, or to the police officer either. So to me, this was more about mental health and safe schools um, than it was guns, although obviously it was in the context of the Uvalde shooting um, and obviously the enhanced background check system for uh, these young men who unfortunately seems to be a fairly consistent profile, whether you're looking at Adam Lanza at Sandy Hook or Salvador Ramos that you. Vivaldi. These were young men who had become alienated from their families. Uh, They threatened harm to themselves and others. And frankly, uh, they become ticking time bombs. And when Salvador Ramos shows up uh, right after his 18th birthday and passes a background check, uh, none of that is known uh, to the FBI or included in the National Instant Criminal Background Check system. That seemed to be an obvious place where we could do better to uncover some of these disqualifying uh, bits of personal history in a way to try to keep guns out of the hands of both criminals and people who are suffering from mental illness.
3: Now, for the most part, I've been, I'd say, broadly supportive of this legislation, which is now law. I did have a few questions about it that I want to get into here in just a second with you, but many conservatives were up in arms, very upset about this, upset with you personally. Why would they be cutting deals with someone like Chris Murphy, who is, Openly hostile to the Second Amendment and gun rights—it's one of his pet issues. Why is he playing ball? Why is he giving away the store to the Democrats? A couple weeks back, famously, you were booed at the Republican State Convention in your home state of Texas. Why do you think some of those folks who are deeply invested in this issue were booing you? Ultimately, what what did you interpret that to mean? Well, what I interpret that to mean is that uh, we do nothing. respond
5: to these tragedies. And I did not get elected to the Senate, uh, nor continue to serve in the Senate for the purpose of doing nothing. Um, I'm looking for an opportunity to find uh, a, a negotiated resolution in a way that will make things better, not to leave things as they are. I think of what some of the uh, some of the misunderstanding about what was in the bill was primarily a, a product of some of the advocacy on the outside, where people basically did not like the idea that a Republican would talk to a Democrat about anything. Much less work with them to try to come up with some sort of compromise, which, as I said, did not sacrifice Second Amendment rights, but did provide uh, some opportunity to make good public policy. So I understand this is uh, this can be an emotional issue. Uh, there are groups on the outside that, frankly, um, they they are proud of their no negotiation, no compromise, no talk position. That's fine for them. It's a free country. They, they have their own First Amendment rights. But if you're going to serve in the United States Senate, and if you are concerned about the people losing faith in their public institutions and their ability to actually function, then you have to do something. You can't just do nothing.
3: I do want to ask you about the biggest... Ironically, red flag for me in this process, and it deals with red flag laws, which I am open to. I think if they're crafted very, very carefully, I think there's a need for that. But I also see a real opportunity for abuse of red flag laws. And we see how the left abuses all sorts of mechanisms across government at the state and federal level. There are some people on the right, and I'm very sympathetic to this view, who say if there's money in this bill, That would flow to states who enact red flag laws. I know that there are other options as well. Who's to say that those laws would not be written poorly, let's say in blue states, that would then ensnare people unfairly and deprive them unjustly of their due process, their civil liberties, their constitutional rights. I know, and I watched with great interest at the time, your floor speech on this bill, and you said... And I've seen some of the fact sheets that you guys put out that there are robust protections on that, anticipating that issue. I'm just unclear what those protections actually are. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on that. Sure, Guy. The um, one choice that we
5: could have made, which we did not make, was for a federal red flag law. Um, So there is no federal red flag law. Nineteen states in the District of Columbia have some version of their own um, crisis intervention order, um, which has now been called red flags, uh, red flag laws in some states. Right.
3: Including Florida. Inter-
5: Interestingly, yeah, Florida and Indiana both have uh, Republican leadership and both have red flag laws. And Senator Scott, former governor of of Florida, has told me that uh, they've been used very effectively in, I think, approaching 9,000 cases in Florida, a very large state. Um, And basically, they are invoked when somebody becomes a danger to themselves. Or others, uh, uh, either law enforcement, which is the way that it's invoked in uh, Florida, or family members who are concerned about self harm or harm to others can ask the court to intervene um the most important concept or i'll just just
3: jump in and just note that senator scott who signed that bill as governor in florida was actually opposed to your bill although he had other reasons that he said for that But, but back to the core question here about red flag laws at the state level and protections on due process i just want to make sure that we that we stay on track that's my own fault but i wanted to redirect that question Yeah, well, due process is
5: is the big concern. Obviously, due process of law is a constitutional, core constitutional right. And there is, um, we wrote into the bill that no state would qualify for any of the federal grants under the bill, uh, unless they had the most robust due process protections known to the law, and of course, there are states like Texas and Arizona that don't have red flag laws but do have other crisis intervention programs like mental health courts, veterans courts, drug courts, uh, assisted outpatient treatment. All of those would qualify for these funds on an equal basis, so that everything. And, and that's good. So there's qualify.
3: options, right? They've they've got flexibility. They can pass what they might be comfortable with in order to qualify for that money. But when you say it's the most robust due process protections known under the law, is that just sort of written open-ended that way? Is it based on any structure that already exists in law? Is that open for interpretation? How specific is that?
5: well we, 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 we went to great deal of trouble to try to reassure people that no state that did not provide robust due process protection could qualify for these funds, and so, in the law itself, we wrote it out, and we were you know it 's probably not a model of uh, legislative drafting because we wanted to reinforce it time and time again that this was the core concern that many people had, including me, that any state might qualify without robust due process protection. Protection. So what that means is an opportunity to, for notice, an opportunity to be heard, to cross-examine witnesses, right to counsel, and, and appearing in front of an impartial judicial officer. Those are generally the, 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 the aspects of
3: due process that, okay. that most courts look at, and that's included in this bill. Well, I think the devil may be in the details on implementation from state to state. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Senator John Cornyn, stand by. I want to switch subjects and continue this conversation right after this short break.
2: Guy Benson will be right back.
3: Back on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour with our guest, Senator John Cornyn. And Senator, it feels to some extent like ancient history. Since I saw this controversy on Twitter, I mentioned it here on the show. I just want to get your take on it. This absolutely asinine attack on you, suggesting that you, in response to a tweet from President Obama after the Dobbs decision on abortion, that you were calling for a reimposition of racial segregation based on, in my view, an obvious, embarrassing misread of the history and your intent. And yet that was a big Firestorm around you when you were making exactly the opposite point, yes right, no
5: you're exactly right now this was just a this was just a slanderous attack. The point I was trying to make, and I think I did make it, but yes uh, some people didn't like it. President Obama said that uh, Roe versus Wade and Casey were precedents that could not be revisited, and my point was that thank goodness there are precedents that are revisited by the court. For example, Plessy versus Ferguson, a separate but equal doctrine which which upheld segregated public schools, which was overruled years later by Brown versus Board of Education that said separate but equal is is unconstitutional. So that was my point, to disagree with President Obama, that it's always bad when the courts revisit their precedent. Sometimes it's really good, and sometimes we make good progress. And I think, frankly, even in the Dobbs decision, that the court was entirely correct in revisiting Roe versus Wade. Abortion is not even mentioned in the Constitution. Abortion will still be available at the state-by-state state basis, but it, it, there will be no federal uh, prohibition uh, that, uh, anymore now that the court has overruled Roe.
3: Yeah, and you know, you can have in the case of Plessy a deeply deeply evil precedent that stands for decades and then is corrected. No one's arguing that that was something the court should not or could not have done, even though it was a long-standing precedent. You were making that comparison with Roe. They might not like the comparison, but you were not suggesting what they are claiming you were suggesting, very much the opposite. I think there was just sort of a festival of bad faith. I wanted to get your reaction to that. And then very quickly, Senator, Justice Kavanaugh and the other justices also, the conservative justices, continue to be harassed. People have been targeting their homes, these protests and agitations and all of that. We saw this Kavanaugh chased out of a restaurant recently, a lot of people on the left, including prominent people, kind of justifying it, if not cheering it on. I wonder what you make of this turn in our politics. Well, it's a, I think it's
5: a, it's a terrible turn in our politics. Um, as you know, the founders expressly made justices and judges uh, insulated from politics and intimidation. They have lifetime tenure. Their salary can't be reduced during their term of office. And uh, they are supposed to be apolitical, not considered to be another branch of of the, the political branch of government. And so I think the kind of intimidation that you're seeing, particularly outside the justices' homes, is something that needs to be uh, prosecuted under existing laws. But unfortunately, it seems like uh, uh, sympathetic uh, prosecutors in places like Maryland, sympathetic to the protesters, that is, and not sympathetic to the justices, are failing to uh, to enforce the law. But we finally were able to get over Nancy Pelosi's objection, a, a provision that uh, provided some parity with uh, what Capitol Police now provide on Capitol Hill to the justices in terms of uh, individual protection for themselves and their families. But this kind of harassment uh, does nothing but undermine public's confidence in the, the apolitical Nature of of the judiciary, and it's just intimidation, uh, pure and simple.
3: Yeah, no, it's it's disgusting, and it's coming on the heels, not that far removed at all, from an assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh. And a lot of people are sort of pretending like that never even happened. And to your point, Senator, I seem to recall that the founders were not big fans of mobs either. I think that was a lot of what went into the crafting of the Constitution and the system that we have here in the United States of America. U.S. Senator John Cornyn of Texas, my guest, on The Guy Benson Show. A lot that we had to get to there. Senator, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Chugging ahead here on the happy hour on the Guy Benson show earlier in the program during our first hour, we welcome back to the show Britt Hume, senior political analyst here at Fox News. So much to talk about with Britt. Here's part of that conversation. Listen, they want to wash out their own president next time. They're looking ahead to 2024 saying no thank you. The problem with that, Britt, and this is one of these, you know, Two ideas colliding, and they come from opposite directions. The insight being this, on the left, a lot of them are abandoning Joe Biden because they feel like he has not done the things that they want him to do. He's been too weak, too tepid, ineffective, mealy-mouthed. They're concerned about, you know, his ability to do the job and all that, but a lot of it is results-oriented. They're angry at him, and they feel like we can do better than this. Let's move on. A lot of the other opposition to Joe Biden from everyone not to his left is because they don't want him doing any more than he's already done. Right. These are very different forces that are at least uniting in one sense, which is to drive down this guy's approval rating. And and I have no idea what an election could look like. Like, let's say Joe Biden's in the 30s, entirely plausible by November. I'm not really sure how that would manifest itself in terms of seats won or lost. But it's it would be historic, I would imagine, because it's one of the most important signifiers to try to predict what might happen in a midterm election, which usually doesn't go well for the president's party in his first term anyway. You add in all these other factors and, and rank unpopularity and a demoralized party base. I mean, if you want to talk about a tsunami, that's certainly the recipe, isn't it?
6: It is. It certainly is. And, you know, as you suggest, uh, a president's political standing with the electorate has always been a major factor in how his party does in a midterm, not just the first midterm, which are traditionally bad for the party that holds the White House, but in all midterms. So that's a big factor. There's no doubt about it. And And he now stands about as poorly as one can stand. 33 percent in this uh, New York Times poll. And look at the conditions. I mean, this inflation thing is a total monster for, for a party in power because it affects literally everybody. Yes, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people who may be able to afford to pay the higher prices, but they don't like them, and everybody notices.
3: Britt, you've been on this show faithfully you know, every month or so for years, and we appreciate it. We always love your perspective. I uh, have great Uh, admiration and respect for you and you have been saying on this show and other shows as well without sort of some of the uh maybe pleasantries surrounding your words or kind of uh, perhaps uh i'm trying to figure out the best way to put this politely but you're not pulling punches in the way that you have described president biden's performance in terms of his acuity and whether he is physically, mentally up for the job. You have been very open about your thoughts on that. And it has been a source of criticism from some of you, saying this is unseemly, uh, it's, it's rude, he's overstating the case, you know, to use a word like senile. You haven't backed away from that. That whole intro, that wind-up to the question, I only say all that because it seems like suddenly the memo went out not long ago, on the other side of the aisle, that they're allowed to start kind of whispering or even speaking openly about exactly that same thing. You've been saying it for the better part of, what, a year and a half now, certainly the last year, and it was a lot of tis-tisking and uh, these things shouldn't be said. And now I guess they've decided that, what, they can't avoid it anymore and if they're going to push them out, they have to start saying these things. I just wonder how you feel about that, given the fact that you've been stating this case very sort of baldly uh, for a while now, and other people might be playing a little bit of catch-up, it seems.
6: I think there's some truth to that guy. And, and remember, the word senile, while a lot of people um, gasp when they hear it, if you look the word up, it simply means showing the effects of one's age. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have dementia. It doesn't mean that you have, you know, uh, some ill, great disease. It simply means you're showing the effects of age. I think that's manifestly and obviously true of Biden and has been for some time. Um, but it, but his age has clearly affected his ability to do the job. He stumbles around in speech. Uh, he forgets where he is. Um, he, you know, you watch him walk. You can tell that he's enfeebled. Um, and, you know, it's so screamingly obvious. Uh, and the chickens are coming home to roost on this issue now. Uh, and the members of his own party obviously know it. And they... And they look at that, and they look at the polling, and they say, oh, my God, we can't win with this guy. We're going to lose big. we got to, we got to move on. And, of course, their problem is that the natural obvious successor to a Biden candidacy would be a Kamala Harris candidacy, and she stands, if anything, even worse with the public than he does. So in that respect, the Democrats have a very serious problem that they've now finally begun to face up to. It's going to be very interesting to see how they handle it.
3: Yeah. I, I was saying earlier in the show, some big decisions to be made, really by the voters in each party base, I know we're discussing 2022 and that's how I opened the interview, but people are already looking ahead to 2024 in earnest, talking about it a lot because it's not like it's way off in the distance. To your point, there are open calls on the left a, a supermajority in this New York Times poll want Biden out. Those are conversations that impact politics now, not next year, not the year after that right now. My full interview with Britt Hume and all of today's show available, as always, online at GuyBensonShow.com on the free podcast. That's no charge to you every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch back from vacation. The team wants to ask some questions about it. We will field a couple of those queries after this.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
3: Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Back from vacation. Glad to be here. Gladder still that you're all here alongside. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonshow.com, podcast free of charge every day on demand. Join us tonight on Special Report, Fox News Channel coming up in the next hour. I will be on the panel, FNC, right around 6:45 Eastern. Well, I was gone for a week. And I tried to somewhat unplug from the news, not completely, but I was definitely not as engaged and immersed as I typically am. So Quiet Wyatt, who is a news maven, right? When he's on vacation, he spends his vacation reading the Wall Street Journal three times, cover to cover, because he has more time to do that sort of thing. He wanted to make sure that I was not too far removed from the news cycle, even while I was taking a break. So he has come up with a short news quiz, and I do not know what he's going to ask me about events that I guess happened during my vacation to see how much attention I was or was not paying. And I really don't want to disappoint War Wyatt. And so Wyatt hit me. I'm not really sure where we're going with this, but hopefully I won't embarrass myself.
0: Okay, guys. So question one. The June jobs report came out last week. How many jobs did the U.S. add in the report last week?
3: Oh, gosh. I'm definitely not going to know this. I have multiple multiple choice. choice? Oh, okay. That makes it easier. A, 372,000.
0: B, 286,000. C, 319,000.
3: Oof. All of those are roughly in the ballpark of what I was going to guess. I think it was over 300,000, so I'm going to say C. I know that it beat expectations on the jobs front. I'm just not sure by how much. I think they were expecting 270-something thousand jobs, and it beat that number. So ooh, I'm going to say C, but I'm doubting it. I'm questioning it. It was A. Ugh. 300-something, all right? Okay. Yes, So it was a big overperformance on the jobs report. I did not have the very granular number. That was a tough one. Okay, up next.
0: That was a tough one. Question two. What longtime Biden aide who played a key role in his 2020 campaign announced that they're leaving the White House?
3: Oh, yes. This is one of his communications people, I believe, a senior advisor. Is it Kate Bettingfield? Is that her name? I'm not quite sure what her last name is, but... She's one of his surrogates. You see her out there on some of the Sunday morning shows, for example. Kate, last name starting with a B.
0: Correct, yes. White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield.
3: There we go. All right.
0: All right. For the final question, this one's maybe going to be hard. I don't know. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was also on vacation last week, soaking up the sun on a beach. Where was she?
3: Oh, boy. I was expecting a question maybe about Boris Johnson. Out on his ear as U.K. prime minister, or at least leader of the Conservative Party. I think that he leaves that position in the coming weeks. That was a big global story. The horrible assassination of the former prime minister in Japan, Abe, with his party now winning a supermajority in the elections after that assassination. We might talk about both of those big world events later on this week, because I think they're both consequential I had only heard about this Pelosi thing because I guess she was getting some attention for her bathing suit. I won't really expand on that. People can go, I guess, find the photos. I did see one of the photos. She was with her daughters wearing a bathing suit on the beach. It was somewhere in Europe. It looked very nice. I think it was – you know what? It was Italy. They were in Italy, weren't they?
0: That is correct. Florence, Italy.
3: I'm going to give myself. You can ultimately give me a grade, but I'm going to give myself a B minus. I got the last two correct, and I was in the ballpark of knowledge on the first one. I just got a specific number wrong. Is a B minus acceptable, sir?
0: I would say so. Also, your your little flex just before with the Boris Johnson and the Jap- uh, Japanese Prime Minister news. I mean, you you kept up on the news, so okay. You, you could uh, I say an A A minus. Oh.
3: Okay, I'll accept the A-, let's not do great inflation here. We don't need that. It's not an A, not an A+, I got at least one thing wrong. So I'm going to say it's an A-, B+, range, and we'll just leave it at that. In the meantime, I know producer Christine has many questions about the vacation up in Cape Cod. I'll just tell her right now, no, I did not see any sharks. My limbs are all still intact. I barely went in the water, though. I went, like, maybe knee-deep at the most at the beach. We will get to Curious Christine's questions later on in the week in a subsequent home stretch, so you can look forward to that. I wanted to take an opportunity here as a point of personal privilege to share with you something that brought me great joy this past weekend. Up in Cape Cod, you might be familiar with my biography, my background, you might not, but from the time I was in elementary school all the way through college, my number one career ambition was to be a sports Broadcaster to do play by play. And along with my buddy Dan Duva, who has been on this show before, he is currently the radio voice of the Vegas Golden Knights in the NHL. He and I did sports broadcasting in New Jersey for our high school on local cable access. We did that for four years, and then for four summers together on Cape Cod, we pioneered the Cape Cod Baseball League, which was radio-style broadcasting for our team, the Chatham A's, now the Chatham Anglers, and now all the teams do this as well. And Dan has been instrumental in building this program and recruiting broadcasters at the collegiate level from all over the country, and we started it 20 years ago, which blows my mind. It doesn't seem like I could be... Old enough to have done something of any significance two decades ago, but he and I did start the Cape Cod Baseball Network two decades ago. And so, as our tradition has been through the years, every five-year anniversary, we get together and do a reunion broadcast of the Chatham A's, now Anglers, game. We ask the current broadcasters to step aside just for one game, and we sit behind the microphones and we call the action. And so the last time I did this was five years ago, so what would that be, 2017. I had not called a single pitch of baseball since. So I actually get butterflies, I'm a little nervous, because I used to do it all the time. It was like, you know, a fish in water. And you have the ebb and the flow, and you get into a rhythm of calling... Any sport, but especially baseball, which I think is just a beautiful game to call, particularly on the radio. It's the background music of summer in my mind. And so it was a cool opportunity to reunite with Dan and do something that I was very passionate about for a long time. I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but we did it. I wanted to give you a little taste of it because why not? It's something I thought was pretty neat. So this was this past Saturday night, Chatham hosting their rival Orleans The game was 1-0 Orleans for a number of innings. Chatham tied it up. Then they were looking to take the lead. I was on the play-by-play for this seventh inning. Kind of a weird play, but it got the job done. Cut 24. It's a lefty-lefty matchup here. Chatham looking for more. Has the 0-1 on its way. Nubbed. Fair down the first baseline. There's going to be no play at first base. They tried. As Reynolds came flying off the mound, he was able to glove it and flip not in time. So they did make a play. The run comes home, and Chatham has now taken a 2-1 lead on an RBI infield hit by Marcus Brown. They were threatening for more, but Orleans got out of it. Here I am calling the last out of the inning and handing the baton off to my buddy Dan for the rest of the play-by-play for the 8th and ninth innings, including our very cool Jingles that I'm a total nerd about. Cut twenty-five. Here comes the one two pitch. Tap towards third, charging Sim. He will throw across and make the play five to three to retire the side. However, Chatham has gotten on the scoreboard. They get two runs on two hits an error and two men left. So the Anglers have been struggling and frustrated all night at home plate. They're getting no hit for a while, then shut out. But that all changed in the bottom of the seventh. As they scratch two across and they take the lead two to one over their rivals, Orleans, we go to the eighth. Dan Duba back with your play by play the rest of the way. Cape Cod Baseball Network.
2: Sports Radio.
3: Sports fans in New York who might listen to WFAN might recognize that jingle package from Jam Creative Productions. Total earworm. I'm obsessed. Anyway, Orleans, the rival team, tied the game in the top of the eighth with a solo home run. It went to the bottom of the ninth. A chance for a walk-off win for the A's and sort of in storybook fashion on this reunion broadcast, 20 years in the making, a pretty cool conclusion with Dan, the professional, at the microphone. Here's how the game ended. Cut 26. 1-1. Line drive. Center field. Base hit.
4: It's a game-winning
3: RBI single for Cooper Angle, playing Guy Garibay. Chatham 3, Orleans 2, in the bottom of the ninth inning. I did the post-game interview with the player out of Clemson who had the game-winning hit, and in the middle of the interview, he got a Gatorade bath. I got mostly out of the way, but they got my right pant leg, so I was soaked. Pretty cool thing. A very fun departure from my current professional duties and a step into the past with some sports play-by-play with one of my best friends in the world. So thank you. Even if you're not a sports fan, you don't care that I like any of this stuff. You think I'm lousy at baseball play-by-play. I thought it wasn't too bad for someone who was pretty rusty. I was pretty proud of it. But I appreciate the indulgence. No more sports play-by-play from me because, hey, we're out of time. We'll get to Christine's questions probably tomorrow here in the home stretch. Special report tonight on Fox News Channel in the next hour. I'm on the panel. See you there. Back here on the radio, same time, same place tomorrow, for The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening.
1: the power
2: of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of fox in your hands with the fox weather podcast precise personal powerful subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts listen to the show ad-free on fox news podcast plus on apple podcast amazon music with your prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts